This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, hey, everybody. How you doing? It's so good to get to be with you here. The power's on. It was off a little while ago. Flickered off in the middle of uh, first service. And, uh, you know, that's part of part of life. And sometimes things just don't go the way that we thought they were. So we're going to lean into actually what that is all about today. We're in a series called How to Kill It. And uh, in this, we're examining that subtle but very present reality that we can self-sabotage the blessings of God. And so uh, before we get started, uh, let me just let you know if you have a middle school or high school student, this Wednesday night we have Unite, which is a day where all of our students descend on our campus here and uh, they get to be in this environment. It's worship for them, message for them, games for them. It's a lot of fun. So if you have a middle school or high school student, don't let them miss out on that. It's a ton of uh, it's kind of fun. It's a good environment for them. It's very, very encouraging, actually. Um, now, as we get started, I'm, I'm going to tell a joke. I'm going to tell another blonde joke. And to be honest with you, I'm probably going to tell a blonde joke every time that we do a, a message during the series. So please don't get offended if you're a blonde. All right? Just, just take it for what it is. All right. So um, there's two blondes went shopping one day. It's a day like today. It's kind of nasty. So they decided they'd go to the shopping mall. Right, they show up to the shopping mall and they go, let's go and like we're gonna go inside. We're gonna spend all day shopping. They spent the whole day shopping. So by the time it was time to go back out to the car and get ready to leave, they had bags and clothes and everything. It's just they were carrying a ton of stuff. So they get out of their car and they realize the girl who had driven realizes that the, the keys are locked in the car. And so the other girl has this idea. She's like, you know, I did this once. My husband took a coat hanger and he fashioned it in such a way that he could slide it down next to the window and kind of shake things around and unlock the door. Let's try that. So they took one of the coat hangers out from pieces of clothes that they they purchased and they slide it down inside the window and begin shaking things around. And all of a sudden, it starts to rain. And it's raining on them, raining on all of their packages, everything. And the lady makes a comment. She goes, we need to hurry up. It's raining. And we left the top down. It's going to get wet inside the car. So that's such a bad joke. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's one of those moments you just want to go, you know, bless your heart, you know. Like, you know, if you're from around here, we say bless your heart. That's, we're not being nice. All right. It's, it's a subtle thing. But, but the, the reality of it is, is that we have a God who wants to bless us, who wants to. God wants to bring blessings about in our lives. And so let's, let's kind of lean into that, okay? That's what this series is all about, the, based on that reality. But there's a, a subtle other reality that's often not present in our lives, and that, that we have a broken nature that pulls us away from God's best. We were born into a world. Romans says we were born under Adam. We were born into sin, and sin in its brokenness, when it comes alive in us, takes us away from God's best. So that reality, when it comes to fruition in our lives, lets us see that we carry with us the capacity to receive or to reject God's blessings. We can receive them or we can reject them. We, we carry that. And, and so I'm going to talk 
over the next several weeks about ways that we reject God's blessings. Ways that we do that. And we shared some of those with you, but this week we're going to talk about control. When we try to control it. When we try to control it. Now control is something that, in, in, in terms of this message, I'm not talking about leadership or, or influence. Um, I'm not talking about you know, godly, biblical authority. I'm talking about a, a, a pretensity that is in our hearts to sin. Right, which is to try to control the things that we, we don't have control over and oftentimes in the same tension neglect controlling and influencing the things that we do. So let's think about what is control in that regard. What is control? What is sinful control? So let me give you two different ways that we often try to control things. And the first thing is what you already identify as being controlling. It's when we hijack God's good plan for our lives and we do our own thing. I know this is what God wants, but I'm going to do this. I know this is the attitude I should have, but I'm going to do this. I, I know, but I reject what I know and go after what I want. That's control. Let me, let me give you a few practical examples. Let's, first one is money, okay? Money is a blessing or a gift from God. God provides increase. The reason, I know, some of you are going, no, listen, I earned the money. No, but I know for sure that you, just like me, at one time were praying, God, give me a job. God gave you a job. God gave you the job. God gave it to you. And so though you may be doing that, you may be putting forth the effort, the blessing originates in the fact that God provided that for you. God provides for us, and his plan for us is that we, in turn, be generous. And God designates generosity not in amount, but in percentages. And so that's the reason in church we use the term tithe. Tithe means 10. 10% of our increase is to be taken out first and given back to the local church. It's not like, okay, we have this allotted amount of money that we can do good things with. It's returned back to the church to fund and fuel ministry. There is no question about this. Jesus was asked point blank about tithing. And his response in the scriptures was, should you tithe? Yes. That's simple. It is the foundational starting point for biblical generosity. God has a plan. Control says, okay, I hear you, but I'm taking my 100% and doing whatever I want to with it. That's control, okay? I'm hijacking God's good plan to do my own thing. Let me, let me give you another example. Let's say God has led you into a situation or, or you got yourself into a situation or maybe you were in a relationship and someone said something that offended you, okay? Someone did, and God has already revealed to us his way for us to deal with offense. We forgive. And you go, no, I'm not going to forgive. I'm going to hold on to this. It's control. That's control, okay? And in many ways, that's the way that we identify being controlling, all right, trying to do our own thing in our life or trying to get someone else to do what we think they should, Th that's controlling, okay, but I want you to also see there's another way, that we try to manipulate 
our way out of God's good plan for our lives. Often, the manipulation is us trying to do something good that gets us out of something God. Let me give you an example. Let's go back to money. Money, tithe. That's God's plan. Tithe. Biblical generosity starts with 10% as the foundation. That's the starting point for it. Okay? But you come and you're like, okay, God, but look at all the good things I've done with my money. Look, I'm giving to this nonprofit, and I'm giving to this nonprofit, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this. And God's like, that's amazing. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was questioned about tithing, he said, should you tithe? Yes, but don't neglect the other aspects of mercy. Jesus was saying doing that, but that's built on top of tithing. Should you? Yes, but this is the starting point. It's like, oh, but, but look, God, I'm doing this. It's like, imagine that you, you were offended. Someone said something about you. And God's word says, forgive them. And you go, but, but God, I'm praying for them. I'm praying for them. Look, look at the good thing I'm doing. I know that I'm not being obedient, but look at the good thing I'm doing. Throughout scriptures, we, we, the, the scriptures, we see this manifested in multiple ways. One of the most cautionary tales, actually, is the story of Jonah. Jonah shows us how both of those come into play. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say the, the, the book of Jonah is a cautionary tale about control. Let's go to it. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preached against it because its wickedness has come up before me. God is taking Jonah, who's a prophet. He, he's basically a pastor. He is, he is well-known in his community. Okay, He is a, a mouthpiece for God. That what's, that's what it meant to be a prophet. And, and God is doing something that's unique in the Old Testament. He's not just you know, like speaking against somebody. He's saying, Jonah, I, I don't want you to stay there. I actually want you to go to them to proclaim this message to them. But look what happened. Next. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, went down. And you find that actually, that phrase going down, you find that all throughout this book as Jonah runs away from God. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to free from the Lord. Literally, God said, I want you to go north. And Jonah went south. He went the absolute opposite direction. He is trying to control. He understands what God wants, and he's running away from it. And as he's on that ship, sailing away, there's a storm that comes up. The the Bible says the Lord sent a violent storm. And there was something unique about the storm because these sailors who are on the ship with him recognize that this is not natural. This appears to be supernatural. This is unique. This is different. And they begin to try to figure out what's happening. If we don't figure out what's happening, there's somebody on this boat who has, who has angered. They, they don't know God at that moment. Who, who is it? 
And finally, Jonah confesses, it's me, I'm running away from God. And these guys, after Jonah begins to tell them just a little bit about their God, literally their hearts turn towards God. And reluctantly, they end up throwing Jonah overboard to save everybody. Can I make a few observations about this? Here's the first thing. Jonah rejected and ran from God's good plan. As a matter of fact, he would even say it himself. I know you're good. And I know if I go there, the Assyrians, which is where Nineveh was, had attacked Israel several times. These were people who had brutalized his friends, his family. I don't want to go there. I don't want you to be good to them. Because I know if you're sending me there, there's a reason you're a good and merciful God. If I show up, you're probably going to do something good for them. I don't want to go. As a matter of fact, this is what I notice about Jonah. Jonah wanted to have the final say in what was good. He wanted to have the final say. He wanted to be able in his own life to define what was good and what was evil. And God's saying, no. I want you to go. I want you to go. This is my good plan. And this is, this is kind of the harsh reality that you see in Jonah, especially in Jonah chapter 1. That Jonah's attempt to control invited God's discipline for him and others. It wasn't just Jonah that went through the storm. It was a whole ship of apparently a bunch of good guys. And if you get into the story, you'll find that these sailors were far away from God, but their hearts were turned to God. The same people that Jonah was not wanting to go to, he meets on a boat and God moves to change their lives in the middle of a storm. See, think about this. How many of your loved ones have had to weather a storm that God sent into your lives to discipline you because you were being controlling. How many times have you had to watch the shipwreck happen on a face of a child or a spouse or a friend because you couldn't give up control? Jonah reminds us that when we're controlling, it will impact the people that we do life with, especially the people we love the most. So the story continues. And I can't, I literally can't read these, this scripture without just get, it just wrecking me. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time. We serve a God of second chances. Who understands that we're not always going to get it right. 
And he's patient and, and he's good to us. I, I told this story. Can we just take that scripture down just for a moment? I, I told this story in the first service and, and I just feel like this is for somebody. When my daughter was about to go into kindergarten, she had a peanut allergy. She, she, we'd given her pe- peanut butter, and she had a major allergic reaction. We had to take her. She was hospitalized. It was, it was super traumatic as a parent. And so from, from that point until she's about to go into school, uh, we, we lived with peanut allergy stuff. And she actually developed several other food allergies, and so we navigated all of that. And God spoke to me, literally, we're about to go on vacation, and God said, Kevin, I want to heal her. I want, you to, I want you to lay hands on her. I want you to pray over her every day that you're away on vacation. And um, it was the next week, the next Sunday night, my daughter was going in that, that Monday morning for, um, for, for allergy testing. It was right before school was starting. And so... On, on, on that Sunday night, my, my daughter comes walking by me, and I just felt God remind me I want to heal her. And I remembered, I, I, didn't, I didn't do what you asked. It, we, were, we were on vacation all week. I forgot. I didn't, I didn't pray for her. And so I scooped her up to Mars, put her on the counter, and put my hands on her back and held her, and I prayed over her. And I knew. Like, God, you are, you're good. It doesn't depend on me. Um, and the next morning, she went in for allergy tests, and my wife called me hysterically crying because all of her tests came back negative, all of them. It was insane. But it represents something. I want you to hear, I want you to hear me. If you're that person that's here today, and God spoke to you, you haven't been obedient. In this, in this moment, in today, there, there's a second chance for you. Just like there was a second chance for Jonah. Let's go back there. Jonah 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, he's there because God in the fish threw him up on the shore of Nineveh. He's literally repeating what he told him the first time. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, so it took him three days to go through it. He's going through the city proclaiming the message God gave him. And if you're reading this with sober eyes, you're going to think, this is a big city. They are wicked. There's no way anything's going to change. No way. But the city leaders hear this message. And they call the town together. They declare a fast, a time of mourning, a time of repentance. God begins to show up and God begins to move. It is absolutely outside of what you would have anticipated happening. This is what happens. Jonah 10, 310. When God saw what they did and how they turned away from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And there's Jonah, who didn't want to go because he knew God is merciful. So in Jonah 4, verse 1, we see something that we should allow our hearts to tune into. Look at this. But Jonah, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. 
which lets me know this, if you're taking notes, this is number three. Jonah obeys with his behavior, but not with his heart. He obeys with his behavior, but it, he, he went through, the Bible says what, he, he obeyed the word of the Lord, his behavior followed it, but his heart wasn't in it. I've said this before, but we need to hear this every once in a while. You can do the right thing and still be wrong. Because if you do the right thing with the wrong attitude, it becomes the wrong thing. And Jonah did the right. His behavior looked right, but his heart wasn't right. You can fool yourself. Proverbs says twice, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of which is death. You can do the right thing and still be wrong. Because this is where Jonah was. Jonah wants to be in control of the outcome of his obedience. Okay, God, I'll do it, but if I do it, you need to do what I think you need to do. And if you do anything else, I'm going to be mad. Please hear me. If you follow Jesus into something, you're going to have to trust him with it. If you follow Jesus into starting a business, there's going to come a point when you have to trust him with that business. If you follow Jesus into a career, there's going to come a point when you're going to have to trust him with that career. If you follow Jesus into a relationship, into a marriage, there's going to come a point you're going to have to trust Jesus with it. If you're going to follow him into parenthood, there comes a moment when you have to trust God with your kids. If you follow him into it, you're going to have to, tr you're going to, have to turn over control. God, it's yours. Make whatever you want to have happen. But what happened with Jonah? What happened provoked anger in him. Two times in Jonah 4, two different times, God looks at Jonah and says, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right? Is it okay? I mean, is that really something that you should be angry and upset and frustrated over? Anger is most often a signal that we are attempting to take control. Especially of the things that we had never even have any control over. People who struggle with control often do this. They try to control the things they shouldn't, and they don't control the things they should. They neglect the influence and authority that they actually do have, and then they try to take authority and influence over things that they have no authority or influence over. So why do we do that? Why do we control? It's really simple. Our desire to control is rooted in pride. Our desire to control is rooted in pride. It's pride. It's just that simple. And pride is one of the scariest postures that our hearts can get into. The Bible says that when, when pride comes, there, there's, you can predict it, there's a fall coming. When, when, when there's pride, 
we, we know that, that what we see isn't going to last. Proverbs 21, verse 4. This is such an important verse in trying to understand pride. Haughty eyes, a proud heart, and evil actions are all sin. Now, there's a phrase in there that doesn't make sense to us in English. Haughty eyes. Okay, The two Hebrew words that are used to translate into that. The first one means elevated. It means elevated. Right? The second word means perspective. Okay, so an elevated perspective, this is what pride is. It, it, it elevates our perspective above everything else. Nobody, you don't understand me. You don't understand my circumstance. Nobody, I, I know what you need to do and what you need, and if you would do this and if this business would do this, an elevated, I think that my perspective is above everything else. Haughty eyes. A proud heart, what, what happens to our hearts when our perspective becomes elevated? They become proud. And then evil actions are all sin. All of it. It's all sin. Sin gives birth to death in our lives. I mean, pride begins in our perspective, takes root in our heart, and is expressed in our behavior. Our desire to control is, is, is rooted in pride. See, when, when you want to control, let me, let me just say this. This is in your notes. God, God doesn't ask us to let go. He commands us to release. Now, there's tension in that language, and I want to explain what I mean. Because there are some of us, we're, we're so controlling that we get into relationships, and we're like, I'm trying, I'm trying. It's just not, no, I'm done. It's not going the way I want it to do. I'm not having them over. I'm not spending time with them. I'm not talking to them. I'm, to I'm, I'm done. I'm just letting it go. Letting go is often passively, almost always resentfully rejecting something. I'm done. I'm done. As opposed to releasing something. Releasing is... All right, I'm not in control of this, God. I'm giving you control of it. I'm going to release this into your control. I'm not, I, I'm not in control of this person. I'm not in control of this circumstance. I'm going to release that into your control. See, humility allows us to release it into God's care. Because humility understands that there are things I can and cannot control. That's where pride, pride literally self-sabotages you. Because pride assumes a posture above God. My ways are higher. My perceptions are better. What I desire is greater. It is the rejection of God's way and the hijacking of your life to do your own thing. It rejects God's leadership. Because humility assumes a posture under God. God, you are smarter than me. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Humility accepts God's leadership. The Bible never encourages us to be a fan of Jesus what it does is it encourages us to make Jesus our Lord. 
And Lord means I've surrendered control. You are now in control. You are my Lord. There's no way he can be Savior if he's not Lord. God can't save you if you're not following him. When we, when we try to control, we reject God. When we, try to, when we try to take up control, we're literally actively rejecting God. Because, and some of you are going, no, that's not me. Listen, I come to church. I do my devotions. I love Jesus. But when we try to control, we reject God because we reject God's leadership. And there's no way you can have a healthy relationship with Jesus if he's not the one leading. Not just I'm a fan, I think he's great. The way that Jesus saves us is the way that Jesus leads us. So let's, let's think about how do we address this. How do we actually do something about it? Okay, Here's the first thing. Recognize who you are and what you can control. Who are you? What's your identity? What's your, where do I find a sense of purpose and being? As, as a Christ follower, this is real simple. The Bible clearly identifies followers of Jesus as children of God. And if you think about that identity as being sons and, and, and daughters of Jesus, what does that mean? Well, just to make an observation from, from my family, a child's identity is wrapped up in their parents and their family. Now, if you, you meet my kids, we have three of them, they're all very different. But there's kind of a brand of crazy that comes with my kids. It's just coming, okay? They show up. If you see us at the grocery store, just please forgive us ahead of time. So let's say that. If we're out to eat and you see us across, please just, again, forgive us. There's kind of a brand of crazy and... It's hard to blame them. They got it from their parents. Okay? That's where it came from. There's an identity that comes as a follower of Jesus. Our greatest source of identity is found in our relationship to our Heavenly Father. It's our greatest source of identity. If God says you're accepted, and this person over here says you're rejected, please understand that I can stand as being accepted no matter what they say because my greatest source of identity comes from my Father. But it also comes from our family. It's not just one person. It's not like just my kids. There's kind of an identity that we have all together. Which is why in some families you'll see things like, you know, like relational issues and addictive issues that spill over from family to family throughout generations because there's an identity in family. You are not just created to have a relationship with your father. You were created to be a part of the family of God, the local church. And it's in that context that we also draft a portion of our identity. So understanding that this is who I am, I'm a child of God, I'm accepted and loved by him, I, I have purpose and value in him, and that is manifested in the family of God. I can make one more observation, 
when it comes to what do I actually have control over. See, a child holds limited authority within the scope of a family. If we were getting ready to remodel our kitchen, my kids would not be picking out the color of the cabinets. They would not be deciding the floor plan of the remodel. Because my little girl would be picking out purple cabinets. And I'm just going to tell you that's not good for your resale value. There's a limited amount of authority. You have a limited amount of authority. Really limited. One of the only things the Bible tells us that we can control is ourself. And again, controlling people spend a lot of time trying to control the things they can't and not a lot of time trying to control the things they should. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, God gave us a spirit of fear. Did not give us a spirit of fear. Let me read it the way it is up here. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. What are we controlling? Our, our self. Our, our self. Which is why in, in the entirety of Scripture, you can study this, I can tell you this. If you're trying to control someone else, it's not God. If you're trying to control somebody else, it is not God. So if we want to address this, number two, submit in humility to God's leadership. Now, submission is a very uncomfortable word. I'm just going to acknowledge that culturally. It's very uncomfortable. We don't like it because it kind of references power dynamics, and that's something that culturally we, we don't like to deal with right now. It's a word that the Bible uses over and over again to design and, and, and determine the way that we navigate relationships. Because here's the, the reality. Submission implies that there will be disagreements. There will be disagreements. In the American ideal, there are no, we just vote on things, we come to a consensus, but in the biblical model of leadership, there's someone who's given authority, they make a decision, and you submit to it. Because ultimately, that's how we follow God. We submit to his leadership. It implies that there will be things that God asks us to do that I do not understand, I disagree with. But God allows me to submit to that. He's not pushing me towards agreement. I mean, it doesn't make sense to give away 10% of your income and live on 90%. That is not rational. But it's a command. And I will either submit to something that doesn't make sense, or I will do my own thing. It doesn't make sense to forgive people who have offended you. But I will either obey in humility and submit to God's plan or do my own thing. We don't always agree. Okay? We don't always have to agree. We don't always have to understand. But we're called in our relationship with God to submit to his leadership. And we're not just called, if you pay attention to the scriptures, we're not just called to submit to his leadership, we're called to submit to the leadership he installs around us. Whether that be 
you know, the leadership in a family, the leadership in a, in a business, the leadership in a community, the leadership in a nation, we're called to submit to it. And here's what I've come to find out. Godly leadership is only effective if you're willing to submit to it. If you're not willing to submit to it, you will never get out of it what you were meant to get out of it. And when we refuse that, when we refuse to submit in humility to God, when we refuse to submit in humility to the leadership that he has around us, when we refuse to do that, when we elevate our perspective above God's perspective, there will be consequences. And here's the worst one. If you're in control, God's not. If you're, if you're the person in control, God's not in control. The broken, sinful desire to be in control is a complete and total rejection of God. It is saying to God, I don't need you. I don't need your influence. I don't need your guidance. I don't need your help. I don't get out of here. And you need to be reminded that on the throne of your heart, there is only one seat. And you get to decide who, who sits there. And right now, it might be a relationship. It might be a pursuit, a career. It might even be you that's sitting there. But your heart will only function the way God intended it is if, if, when you put Jesus on the throne of your heart. That's the only way it's going to work. So here's another cost of being in control. If you're in control, you lose God's reward. You lose God's reward. If you're in control, like, let's just be honest. It might be that you go, oh, look, we had an amazing vacation. Look how good my kids are doing. Look how organized and beautiful my home is. But please listen to me. If you're controlling it and that's what you have, that's your reward. That's where it stops. That's the only reward you have. When we're obedient to Jesus, the reward that we get far outlasts the moment that we're in. It's eternal. If you're in control, you lose God's reward. We say this a lot of times when it comes to ministry. If it's God's will, it's God's bill. What that means is that God's going to take care of all the details, right? All the little details of my life. God's taking care of them. If I step into his, he's going to take care of it. I just have to follow him. But I want you to hear when it comes to controlling that if it's God's will, it's God's deal. If it's God's will, it's God's deal. We don't get to deal with God. It's not like I'm cutting a deal with him and he's going to have to negotiate with me. No, he, he defines the terms. And either I'm going to reject them or submit to them. And when I submit to them and I obey, then it's God who is crafting the product. 1 Corinthians 9, out of the message, I love this. You've all been to the stadium and seen the athletes race. Everyone run, runs, but only one wins. So run to win. All right. In other words, like there's, there's a prize in life. Let, let's, let's get the prize. All good athletes train hard. They do it for a gold medal that tarnishes and fades. But you're after one that's gold eternally. 
We're not running this race for, for a, a reward that only lasts today. And if you're in control, you might, you might, and things might go well, and it might look good, but that's your reward. That's it. Number three, if you're in control, you'll live in fear. You'll live in fear. Did you pay attention there? 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of a power and, and love and a sound mind and self-control. Right? What, what are the, the comparisons? He didn't give us a spirit of fear, but he gave us one of self-control that's rooted in love and, and power that comes from him. Not fear, self-control. When you, when you reject self-control, you're always going to live in fear. When you try to control the things you can't, you invite fear and worry and anxiety into your mind and your heart and your life. And lastly, if you're in control, you'll lose intimacy. You'll lose intimacy. Which means that the relationship in which you're letting control live as long as you let it live, you're going to kill it. Intimacy is the byproduct of two healthy people who have surrendered their agendas to be able to connect deeply with each other. On the level that is appropriate for their relationship. In Luke 15, Jesus tells a story about two people who lose intimacy with their father. It's called the prodigal son. It's a dad who has two boys, and one comes to him and says, Dad, I'm here, and uh, I want my inheritance. Now, in our day and age, that's kind of normal. A lot of people, when they get older, will do that with their kids so they can watch them enjoy it. And that day, was, this literally was as if he was saying this, Dad, you mean nothing to me? except what I'll get when you die. So can we just go ahead and make that happen right now, and then I'm going to check out. And the father, being a good father, did exactly what he asked. Here's your inheritance. And as Jesus tells the story in Luke 15, he leaves, goes to a faraway country, squanders all of his wealth, and finds himself in a servitude position taking care of pigs, so poor that he cannot even afford to feed himself. And he remembers his dad. And he remembers that the servants in his house had enough food. And he says, you know what? I'm going to go back. I'm, I'm going to ask, can I, can I just be a servant? Can I just be a servant in your house? I know I've rejected you. I know I don't deserve to be your son, but can I be a servant? The Bible says that the father, while the son was still a long way off, saw him. Ran out. Embraced him. Put a robe on him. Put rings on his fingers. You're not a servant. You're, you're a son. You know, he controlled by rejecting the Father, and going to do his own thing. But the God of second chances in the Father is there waiting to receive him, not just as a servant, but as a son. 
when he, when he made his mind up, I'm, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go where I was created to be. I'm going to go back to my father. I gave up my relationship with my father. But that night, when the work day was over, the older son shows up. And he sees the party going on. He asks somebody, what's going on? Well, your brother's home. And your dad is throwing a party. And he gets mad. Because he was the brother who stayed behind and was good. He was the brother. If any brother deserved a party, he was the brother that deserved a party. And so the father exits the party and finds the son. And he asks them the exact same question that God asked Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. Why are you angry? And he says, I'm the one who stayed behind. I did it right. And, and you're throwing a party for him? You've never given me anything. You've never given me even a goat to have a party with my friends. Notice that he didn't care about his relationship to the Father. That he thought in his obedience that he could manipulate his way into something good. His staying behind had nothing to do with the Father. It had this originated in his heart to, to say that you owe me now. You owe me something good. Look at me. And he was controlling it. And it cost him his relationship with his father. Luke 15 ends with a party going on, a son welcome home, and a father who's outside with the older son who is now lost because he was trying to control everything, trying to be good enough that God would owe him a blessing. Maybe right now, this is the moment for you to just kind of in your heart sense that God's here. He's not going to give up on you. You are not in control. And you never will be no matter how hard you try to be. You don't have to be angry. You can trust that he is good and he will not fail you. Let's pray together. God, help us to see how the desire to control has self-sabotaged the relationships that we're living with. And in this moment, God, give us the wisdom and the clarity to step away from that, to lay down our lives, to confess that you are Lord, and to give up, release control, give it to you. Trust you with 
our relationships, trust you with our families, trust you with our future. To know that you are good and you are faithful. With every head bowed and nobody getting up and moving around, right now I believe there's some people in here that you just need to say, God, I'm giving, I'm giving control over to you. I'm going to release it. I'm tired of what it's done in my life. I'm tired of how it's sabotaged relationships. I'm tired of trying to be good. I'm tired of trying to earn the things that I think I deserve. I'm just tired of being angry. And right now, in the same way that that father walked out of that party, the Spirit of God is in this room right now, and all we have to do is make the same decision that the son made when he was staring at the troughs of pig food. I just need to go back to my dad. And, and I don't want you to worry about who's looking at you or Wherever, just in this moment, if you feel the heart of God just leading you to respond, what we're going to do is, in, I'm just going to count to three. I'm going to count one, two, three. When I get to three, if that's you, this is your moment, then what we're, we're just going to raise our hands. It's an outward sign of an inward decision. God, I'm laying my life down. I'm surrendering the lordship of my life to you. I'm releasing my family to you. I'm releasing my marriage to you. I'm releasing my future to you. You're in charge. I trust you. It's your deal. You get me. So I'm going to count one, two, three. If that's you, raise your hand. Here we go. One. Two, three. Raise your hand right now if that's you. Raise your hand. Get him up. Get him up. Get him up. God, for all of those hands, for all of those hands right now, for all the hearts right now that are inviting you into a new level of lordship and leadership right now. We, we just want to confess that you are good, you are faithful, you are in control, you're going to take care of this, you're not going to leave us alone, you're a good and loving God. And we will trust that because if we're honest, you've proved yourself. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.